Well, good afternoon, everybody. Can I just ask you a favour? If I accidentally say morning, let me off the hook. I'm not used to afternoon church, but it's a good idea. It's a very good idea. Who had a good sleep in this morning? The rest of the wider, diligent kingdom envies you. As you heard, my name's Pastor Dan Shake. It's a very confusing name because... If you know anything about Arabic, Sheikh is the name of the guy that runs the mosque. And um, I have a very multicultural church, but it just so happens that amongst all the different cultures, I've got a name that signifies the head of a mosque. My executive pastor is Persian, and I have a Palestinian worship leader. Sometimes when people walk in, you are in church. I am Pastor Sheikh. This is not a ruse. This is a church. But uh, yeah, I just want to thank the leadership just for the honor and privilege of uh, having me here. And um, I've met Pastor Dexter, who thinks Dexter is an awesome name, just the name Dexter. Yeah. And he's an awesome guy. Let's give him a round of applause for being an awesome guy. But Dexter, what a name. Dexter, Pastor Dexter. Sounds like he's ultra intelligent, ultra cool. It's just, it's just that sort of name. Love it. He's asked me to come and preach on... Uh, outreach on being the hands and feet of Christ, introducing uh, Christ to people. And it's a topic I love to preach on. Um, That's the heart of our church, as well as um, what Pastor Dexter and the leadership's heart is here. And uh, I just want to start with uh, just a verse. It's going to start weirdly, trust me, but uh, you'll see where we're going with the verse because I just wanted to look at something dramatic just to start with showing the heart of God towards uh, people and the heart of God towards those who know him, the heart of God towards those who don't know him. So stick with me here. This isn't uh, some legalistic doom and gloom message, but we're going to start here because we're going to do something. We're going to start with Isaiah chapter 5, and it says this. If you're looking on the screen, wow, oikos water. Wow. I'm going to give it the test right now. You guys do all right. <laughs> Holy water. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left. So we have the prophet Isaiah here declaring woe. He's saying woe to the selfish, to the, to the greedy. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. He's saying woe to the, to the alcoholic, woe to those whose life is uh, dedicated to drinking. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Sounds a lot like our day and age. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. He's calling woe upon the proud. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. So this isn't an anti-alcohol message, by the way. These are just, these are just the woes that Isaiah himself chose to declare. But here we have Isaiah, mouthpiece of God, prophet of God. He's traveling around declaring woe on this village, woe on that village, woe on this person, woe on that person. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to them, woe to him, woe to her. He's declaring woe. But I want to show you something that happens, something very special in his life in the next chapter. It says in Isaiah 6 verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. You see, in Middle Eastern culture, that which touches the floor is is cursed. It's dirty. And I know a lot of you guys, you'd have the same uh, sort of culture with taking shoes off at the door, taking shoes off before you enter a house. That which touches the floor, it's dirty. It's filthy. You may remember when George Bush was in power and in a press conference, an Iraqi man took his shirt off, uh, shoe off, not his shirt off, and flung the shoe at his head. Who remembers that? Anyone remember that? And he dodged the shoe. He was, he was quite slick. But it, it wasn't just a matter of uh, 
throwing the shoe because, you know, to try and hit him. It was because that had been touching the floor. It was a statement that uh, those of his culture would have understood. But he flung the shoe. And here he's saying that the train of his robe, the bottom of his robe, that which touches the ground, the most uh, cursed, filthy, if you, if you could call it that, which we can't. But he's saying the part of God, which we would associate, the train of his robe touching the ground, that was enough to fill the temple with glory. That that part of God filled the temple with glory. He's making a a statement there. He then says this, and remember, this guy's been going around. He's been the representative of God, the mouthpiece of God. He has spent chapter five dishing it out like he's in some sort of biblical freestyle battle Woe to those who do this. Woe to those who do that. Woe to you. Woe to him. Woe to her. Woe to them. But when he sees the Lord in his rightful place, when he sees God for himself, when he sees who God really is, when he sees God, all he can say is, woe is me. He says, I'm ruined. I'm undone can never be the same again. That's what he's saying. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Revelation of his own standard in comparison to God's standard changed him. And it changed him forever. He was no longer able to call woe upon the individual. All he could say when looking at God for himself is woe is me. And this is a man who's serving God. This is a famous prophet of the Old Testament. This is a man of God right here who's walking, fulfilling God's chosen plan over his life. But when faced with the reality of God's holiness, he was under law, and so he probably thought he had a perception of God's standard. But when he saw God for himself, he realized as the law is meant to do, just how far below God's true standard he was. And it ruined him. It changed him. He went from declaring individual petty woes like that to declaring destiny over nations. Changed his life. And the reason he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, is because that was what he was using in the service of the Lord. That which he did for God, he realized, even that which God has called me to do, I'm so unworthy of it. I'm so unworthy to serve God. And he realized, being one of God's people, one of the Jews, that there were people that declared the praises of God. And he said, we're, wow, we get to declare his praises. We get to declare his glory. We're, we're a people of unclean lips. I use these lips to serve God. I'm a man of unclean lips. Seeing God as he truly is, knowing ourselves and seeing him, it changes us. It ruins us for the way we could have been living. Our fallen nature is self-righteous and we need to realize that. It can play out by us um, falling into the trap of comparison where, you know, I'm saved, but that person, they're really saved. You know, Christian gossip circles get together. Have you seen Joanna? Yeah, she's really saved. She's really, really saved. We start to measure savedness levels. And, and when we realize God's true standard, no one's more saved than me. And each one of us should say that about ourselves. No one is more saved than me. Understanding who we are and who God is, it changes us. Self-righteousness uh, mean-spiritedness, a cruel Christianity, it can't thrive. When you see God for who he really is, it changes us. It changes us. Whenever we start to lose sight of that, we need to get our eyes back on who he really is and ruin ourselves again, undo ourselves again. And all we do for God, all we do to serve him, it's our privilege. It's our absolute honor. And I don't know where everyone in this room is at. And so before continuing with the sermon, I just wanted to go through a verse. I don't have it on the screen, but I'm sure most of you know it off by heart. John 3.16. 
it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's Christianity 101 right there. And there's four elements that whenever you have theological drift, you can use that to center yourself back. Four elements. God's motive. He loved. He loved. God's motive for saving us was he loved. So it wasn't like, oh man, they've stuffed it. They've stuffed it again, but they're my kids. So I've got to save them. So I'm going to have to send Jesus down there so I can beat them up so I don't have to beat them up. Now get in the car. It's not like that. He loved. His motivation was love. The whole illustration was an illustration of love. For starters, never get the father's motive twisted. He so loved. For God so loved that he gave. He gave. So provision for salvation, for redemption, for justification, he gave. He sent his son. He did it all. He did the work. All we have to do is believe. The third element. All we have to do is believe. We have a salvation through faith alone. Justification through belief alone. Shall not perish but have life. And we get a life in him. We get a new life. We walk with him. Let John 3.16, since I know most of you would know it off by heart, let that be your resetter. Now, this isn't an attack on anyone because... We all have a fallen nature this side of eternity. So we are all prone to drifting into self-righteousness. It's part of our fallen state. It can come so easily. It can come so quickly. But we use John 3.16 as a resetter. And we're meant to view ourselves as the saved ones. We're meant to view ourselves as the privileged ones. As, wow, I made it in. Wow, he died for me. Wow. So I just wanted to start with that. And... For a long time in my life, I I thought I knew who Jesus was. I got saved um, at the age of 22. And um, at first, I got saved into somewhat of a legalistic Christianity. Probably did me some good at the beginning. But the more I started to get into the word myself, the more I started to discover a different heavenly father, the more I started to discover a different focus, a different father's heart. The more I started to discover how wide his arms were outstretched, uh, I started to discover what his church should be about. I started to discover what his heart is for this world, how he views humanity, how he views the lost, how he views the sinner, how how he views everyone. I'd always had a belief in a creator God, and I'd always had a certain respect for him. But I thought he was distant. I thought he was disinterested. Maybe even a little angry. Maybe like me, you thought Christianity was judgmental, condemning, or hypocritical. And as I viewed it in that way, I viewed it in its correct place that this was how it was meant to be. I mean, we can't let people just go on sinning, can we? I mean, we need to make a righteous stand for God, don't we? You know, I I filled myself with a certain focus and a... It's amazing how it's a fruit killer. And it's amazing how the fruit of that cuts across the very heart that wants to see God's standard even promoted on this earth. It's amazing how condemnation, self-righteousness is the bane of seeing people adopt God's way of life. It's amazing. But if that's been you, if you've experienced that, you're wrestling with that, you're struggling with that, you are that, Maybe you haven't experienced who he really is. Maybe you're confused and we've all been there and we all get there. Maybe you've encountered mean-spirited Christianity, grudginess, gossip. Maybe you met a really good Christian on a bad day. Maybe you met a bad Christian who's on a journey. Maybe you met someone going through a rough season. Maybe you're in a rough season. Maybe you don't get it all yet. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this. And this is what is so important to us in bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to this world. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
He's giving us a very, very simple illustration to know whether our Christianity is functional or not. When people come to us, are they like, ah, that kind of hurt a little. That kind of pricked me. I thought I was going to get some fruit and that kind of hurt a bit. That's what this verse is giving us. The Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, uh, itself being a a rebuke to the Pharisees, an attack on legalism and self-righteousness. He gives us this verse. When people come to us, they should be like, man, this is good fruit. That was sustaining. That was life. That was sweet. It was sweet to taste. I think I want more of it. And if you've tried to serve God, I'm sure at certain times upon your journey, just like me, people have come to you and they encountered a thistle, they encountered a thorn. Ah, yeah, I don't think I want what that person has to give. And we have, in the Western world especially, a generation that's given up on the church in their thousands, en masse, because what they encountered was sharp. What they encountered pricked in. What they encountered was, it wasn't sweet. It wasn't life-giving. It was death. It was thorns. It was cursed. It was self-righteousness. It was judgmental. It was cruel. If you've encountered that in this place, well, I'm here to tell you it wasn't God's intention. Sorry, by in this place. I don't mean encountered in this place. I mean, if you're in this place and you've counted it, before, I've met some of you guys. You guys are nice. I can, I can tell already. I can tell already. The prophet Seven says this. He's a Christian rapper, but I, always, I love to do something in my congregation. I always quote Christian rappers as prophets and poets. And uh, the young people snicker and the older people tune in. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, the prophet Seven, definitely. I've definitely heard of the great theologian Lecrae, Yeah. Anyway, the prophet Seven, he's a Christian rap, he says this, this world will die long before receiving you. We can't even feed a few. They're seeing us, but not seeing you. I love it because what he's pointing to is the responsibility of us as the believer. When they see us, are they seeing him? When they see us, do they see him? Do they catch a glimpse of him? So they catch a glimpse of something different. And when I say different, I'm not talking about a righteous stand for the morality of God. And if when I say that, you read into that, well, he doesn't care about the morals or the stand of God. Well, then you're you're hearing what you want to hear. That's not what I'm saying. And it's amazing how often when the way we approach people, the love of God gets preached, people can get twisted with it. Like what is being said is 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 cutting across the morality and the stands of God. It doesn't. But there's nothing wrong with us as believers being strategic. There's nothing wrong with us keeping the end goal, the end goal, and that's influence. If you look at the life of Christ, you will see this time and time again. And if you really, 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 really want to stand up for the righteous stand of God, I I just invite you, when your boss is going through a divorce, march to his office Knock on the door because we want to make a righteous stand for the standards of God, right? So in your workplace, make sure when your boss is going through a divorce, you march to his office, knock on the door, and let him know what God's standard is when it comes to divorce. You guys feel me? You understand what I'm saying? I love giving that example. Whenever I have certain theological debate, I'm full of them. I'm full of examples like that that get people like, yeah, well, I... uh Yeah, I see where you might be coming from. (laughs) I am passionate about people stepping up into the fullness of who God has called them to be. And as a pastor, my church does not grow unless disciples step up into the fullness of who God has called them to be. But let me tell you what the foundation is that will build that life that I want. out. Let me tell you what the springboard is that will project them into who God has called them to be. It's not religion it's not legalism it's not self-righteousness it's the love of god his compassion his kindness his mercy and his grace 
Without it, it will be an inward-focused Christianity that will be proud of what it no longer does anymore. Well, I don't go there. I don't do this. I no longer do that. That's an easy Christianity. We can find that bit hard, but it's easier compared to what we're really called to do. Let me, what we're called, let me tell you what we're called to do. We're called to live sacrificial lives of love towards this world, being the hands and feet of Christ, representing that when outsiders, those who don't know him, see us, they catch a glimpse of him. And that's hard. That's sacrificial. That's dying to ourselves. And when we do that, the only fuel that will enable us to do that is his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his kindness, us seeing, wow, how saved am I? Wow, look who he really is. Look what he did for me. I want to show you a Facebook um, post that uh, someone who visited our church said. He said this. We we're in Leaderville right now, but we used to be in Northbridge. So we used to get quite a few people who, um, they were still out and about from the night before. But uh, he wrote, I asked for a glass of water because I had just stopped drinking at 8.30. Sorry about the uh, rambling English here. He was, anyway, just stopped drinking at 8.30 and was still drunk and didn't know what this place was. So they showed me how nice everyone is. They then welcomed me in with open arms, even though I'm still on from last night. <laughs> I love that bit. And they have restored my trust in people. Wow. I don't know if we can fully take credit for that, but... Uh, We'll take personal thanks to Dan Pasture. (laughs) Love it. Even put it in brackets, like, for talking to me do normally when I'm so blitz. (laughs) And Dre for being so nice to me and showing me around again, treating me so nice. And Yadion also convincing me to stay. P.S. Congrats on your engagement. Now, I've got to admit, I don't know how I even received a mention. Look, it's a pastor thing. You get honorable mentions. You get credit for what everyone else in your congregation is doing. You know what I'm talking about. A pastor took credit for something you did once. But us pastors, we always get credit for things that we just oversight, even when we don't do anything. Pastor Dan. Greener pastors, Dan. I like it. But my guys, Yuddy and Dre, they, I, I just walked up and was like, oh, hey, who's this? Hey, how you got, you know, these guys looked after him. And um, Yuddy, he's, he's a very, very mean and rough Vietnamese guy. I'm, that must have been really God awake in his life to do that. But them simply showing kindness, showing love, bringing water, talking to him, sort of turning their nose up at him. Well, I've got to make a stand for God. Young man, let me tell you. I mean, he was the same age as them, but <laughs> notice you did an all-nighter. We want you to rethink your life. Let me tell you about, you know, they didn't come at him like that. But the gospel was preached. The good news was preached through their actions and through their lives. He received mercy, great help, comfort, connection, friendship. He caught a glimpse of who Jesus was. He caught vision of who he was. He saw who he was through the actions of these two guys. I mean, when I read that, I wasn't there for most of the time. I would have been off preparing, but you got this yaddy guy all deep talking about his engagement. It's great. Let me ask you something. Is your house a hospital? Or is it a fortress for you where you put your feet up When you do your shopping, your groceries, are you strategically buying enough food that it can be a place of hospitality, a place where people are welcomed in? Is your bank account hit when you plan your grocery shopping? Is your car a tank or is it an ambulance? Is it a psychologist's chair, a counsellor's chair? Is your driver's seat a pulpit? You see, we talk about the speaking of the gospel and, you know, the actual proclamation of what Jesus did. It's important, but it's just part of the picture. Because long before that, someone's put work into someone. When you've seen someone come to Christ, 
I'm convinced there's been Christians along the way that have shown people a glimpse of who he, who he was to get that person to that point. Sometimes as a church, you guys will reap where you haven't sown. Someone will walk in here and accept Christ because there's been believers along the way. And guess what? Sometimes we sow and we don't reap. But every single one of us has a responsibility to preach the gospel at all times. And it will change the way you view yourself in your family, in your workplace, in your studies, when you meet up with friends. Let our language be uplifting, encouraging, life, something they don't experience. And this is something I have to be careful with. My friendship circle, I'm I'm even talking about the ones at church because we love to rip each other to shreds. One of the beautiful parts of Australian culture. But uh, let me tell you something. It's even easier in a multicultural setting. We love to rip into each other. You guys would be horrified by what you... But you know what? I think I've lost most of you just now, but just stick with me. (laughs) Our language needs to uplift. It needs to encourage. Imagine being that guy in your workplace that really takes on the call of God to change the way you speak. When other people are bagging out the boss, you don't take part in it. And not in a judgmental way, but you always have life to speak. You always have encouragement to speak. They're bagging out the boss. Yeah, well, you know what? It would be really hard to be the boss. He's got to make hard decisions every day. But remember that time that he... Remember how good he was when he... We really can't judge to in issues. Imagine being someone that just shocks your workplace and shows them a glimpse of who Christ is, not by moralizing. Don't do it in a moralistic way, but just by speaking uplifting words, encouraging. You know what my wife does all the time? It's awesome. She, ta- she bakes at night and takes cupcakes in for the whole office. Something so simple like that. You see, when you break it down, and we don't over-spiritualize our evangelism, but what we do is we over-practicalize it, we find so many ways, so many ways of preaching the gospel and showing who Christ is in practical ways to people around us. You know what? My intention is to get people into the kingdom. My intention is I want people serving in a local church. I want people giving their lives and accepting Christ. I want people living for something, having purpose. But I want it so much that I'm going to be strategic about it. We're not called to be Jehovah's Witnesses. That is to attack. I use the word attack. Attack the unsuspecting, unknown person with our words. But Christ, we see what he did. He went to the prostitute, to the publican. He went to the tax collector. He went to the sinner. And he built relationship. And he shocked them through what he did. He provided for them. He uplifted them. Everything he did was different. Different does not mean Ned Flanders. We have to find other ways to be different that shocks them. You know, when someone comes up to you, hey man, check out this chick. I've only got eyes for my wife. Do you know how much people will like, whoa. Wow, really? Really? Yeah, I'm not really interested. Can you get that out? Yeah, I'm not really interested in seeing it. That's cool. We don't have to do everything in a judgmental way, but there's ways that we can lift up God's standard and it shocks people. And they can't attack it. There's nothing they can do. And look, as I preach this, I'm well aware that many of you show countless kindness and represent God to countless people in your lives. But um, what I want you to do is realize that when you do that, it's not just a byproduct of your Christianity. That is you preaching the gospel. That's you being Christ-like. Maybe you undervalued the goodness that was already in you. When you do these things, when you find ways, when you get creative, when you're so interested in the lost, when you're so interested in the good news of Jesus Christ coming into people's lives, when you're so interested in people catching a glimpse of who he is, you'll get creative. You'll strategize about your office place. You'll strategize about your study group. You'll strategize about unsaved family. 
even to believers that think they know him, but they're, they're mired in, in legalism or they're away from the church because they thought they knew who Christ was, but they didn't really know who he was. Do you compartmentalize and, you know, work is work, but I've got other... No, wherever you are, you never know who's on the edge. I remember in, um, before I was a pastor, when I was a volunteer youth pastor, I worked at an IT joint and um, it was funny, this Vietnamese guy came up to me, he was like, I think I'm going to be a Christian now. <laughs> okay then, yeah, I'm getting married and she's a Christian, she wants me to convert to religion. Like, well, that's easy. And he'd always come up, he'd be like, do we believe in ghosts? <laughs> no, no, we don't believe in ghosts. But that came about because I'd found a way to put it out there already in my workplace that I was a Christian. You know, maybe you can make sure you've got a cross on your study books. Find a way to strategically, without shoving it in people's face, let people know you're a Christian. In your workplace, put a scripture. Put a scripture on your desk and then proceed to be the best representative of Christ in your workplace you can be. In your study group, go the extra mile. Wherever you are, find a way to let them know you're a Christian. Understand human nature. Don't be dumb. Understand human nature. Don't shove it in their face. Find a way to let them know. And then just love them. Be the most merciful, grace-filled, life-speaking, uplifting, encouraging, generous, welcoming, hospitality-filled person you can be. I'm talking go crazy. You know what? Do something crazy. Maybe you've seen someone who lives in a completely opposite direction than you and when you drive home from work, they get the bus. Hey, man, I'll drop you home every day. It would cost you, wouldn't it? You've finished work. You just want to get home. There's an extra hour. But what I'm saying is find a way. Get creative. It will cost you. But this is the gospel preached. This is what preaching the gospel is all about. You know, when we read the word, we never see Jesus judge or condemn sinners. We never see him judge people of ill repute. He hangs out with them, establishes relationship, fellowships with them, blesses them, loves them, accepts them. We only ever see Jesus condemn the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He condemns those who view themselves as above others. He condemns self-righteousness. He condemns hypocrisy. But there's only one time we see Jesus moved to physical action, violent physical action. He made a whip out of a bunch of cords and we found the account in all four gospel books showing its importance. In John, 10, John 2 verse 14, it says this, In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, I'm going to unpack what's going on here. The Jewish laws required a half shekel temple tax once a year. So every Jewish male over 21, he must pay this temple tax. And so we've got Jews coming from all corners of the earth. Now, you can't pay with Roman coin or Greek coin because it's got a figure of Caesar on it and he thinks he's God. So, you know, that's idolatry. So you've got to change your currency to pay it in the shekel. So you've got money changing going on. If you're coming to offer a sacrifice and you live somewhere far like Antioch, um, you know, somewhere further afield than Judea, you, you don't want to bring your own. You might, you might have your own cattle, but you don't want to travel the whole way with cattle. So you'll sell cattle get money, come to Judea, buy a sacrifice there and bring it. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's practical. Um, you had to buy your livestock from traders there once you got there. So the stalls selling cattle, they're, they're providing for those who want to worship God. They're providing things for those. Um, you got people selling doves. Doves are the sacrifice of the poor. They're cheap. If you're poor, you can buy doves and you can sacrifice doves. So um, you, if you couldn't afford a heifer, a lamb or a goat, uh, you could offer doves. So these money changers, cattle sellers, dove sellers, they're providing a range of services to those seeking to come and worship. These were services that needed to happen. They needed to pay their temple tax. They needed to sacrifice. The, they needed these things, and they may as well be as close to the temple as possible. 
where the services are needed. So what was so wrong with what was going on? Now, for starters, we're not going to even get into the den of thieves part, which suggests that perhaps they were selling these things at high markups. We're not even going to get into that side of things. It sounds like they were ripping people off, which, you know, is especially bad when you consider the doves. But aside from that, what is the problem here? These are temple services. These are things needed to worship God in the manner that he has instructed his people to do so. In Mark 11, it says this, Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Well, for starters, and we're not even getting to the root of the issue just yet, these courts had become a thoroughfare. It sat roughly in the middle of Jerusalem. And so it had four entry points. Jerusalem's got four entry points because it's got walls, armored walls. And so you've got specific gates you need to get in. The temple's in the middle. So it becomes a shortcut. It gets quicker to get from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives if you cut through the temple courts. And so to many, the temple was just a shortcut to transport their wares. Instead of being a place to come to, it's a place to pass through. It's a shortcut. They had made somewhere that people, they made it somewhere that people pass through on their own way to their own plans, their own agendas, their own focuses, their own priorities. You know, my, my agenda's over here, but I can probably pass through here on the way to what's my agenda. Well, my focus is over here, but I could pass through there to get quicker to where I want to get. Surely there's nothing with making a little bit of money out of this. God, I have a plan that will make me and you very rich. Doesn't work. Tried that one. We're seeing multiple infringements here. People trying to rip off the poor, money traders trying to rip off those trying to worship. Seeing those of you, the house of God as a shortcut to get where they want to go. But there's something much, much bigger at play here. And this is what got Jesus mad. This is what got him so mad that he got violent. See, there's many temple areas, there's many temple courts. Holy of Holies, the holy place, the inner courts. Only Jews could enter those places. This occurred in the temple area called the outer courts. See, here is what makes what was happening much worse. Here is what moved Jesus to violent action to rectify the situation. The Jews were God's people. They were insiders. They would not have dreamed of doing any of these activities in their areas. If they had even tried, they would have been stoned to death. They would have been shut down. They would have been killed for even suggesting, would I be able to sell doves in there? Do you think I could take my... If anyone tried to use any of those areas as a shortcut, they wouldn't have dreamed of conducting any of these activities in the inner courts or beyond and further in. But they dared to do it in the outer court. Another name for the outer court of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. A Gentile was a non-Jew. People who under the old covenant were not God's people. They were outsiders, outcasts. The court of the Gentiles was God's provision for the outsider. They were God's provision for those who did not know him. It's where those who were not God's people could come to meet their God. Even under the old covenant, there was provision for those who didn't know him. It was where those who didn't know God could come to learn about him, to meet with him, to pray to him. The outer court was God's provision for outsiders. And those who were God's people already, those who were insiders, those who already knew him, they had decided this isn't that important. This isn't that big deal. Why would we need a court for outsiders? Why do we even need that? Surely we can use that space to better aid our worship. Surely the place where those who don't know him can come to know him. Do we really need that? We could, that could aid us to worship him better. That could aid us in our diligent, honoring, respectful, sacrificial worship to our God. Whether they had realized or not, they had decided 
through their actions, through their conduct, through the way they had set up their lives, they had decided that outsiders being reached, outsiders knowing who God was and is, wasn't a big deal. The intended, God-intended purpose of that court was of no big deal to them. When they, decide, when they were viewing the way the house of God should function, what it should be about, they decided the outsider was an optional extra. See, when we declare the truth that the church of Jesus Christ is for the lost, it's for outsiders. When we acknowledge that, when we thank God for it, when we live for that purpose, when we plan and build our lives around the goal and the purpose that this is for outsiders, this is for them, this is for those who don't know him, when we cement that as a part of who we are as believers, when we clear the way, when we see it as a strength of a disciple's life instead of an optional extra, when we enshrine it, when we protect it, when we talk about it, when we speak of it in such that way. And this is a church, you know, I believe, uh, I can tell there's a great atmosphere and, and attitude and, and life. And this is a place where people can find him. And whether a hand goes up at the altar call, whether people walk away, it doesn't matter. Our goal is to show them a glimpse of who he is. Sometimes we'll sow, sometimes someone else will sow, but our goal is to show Christ and to see that as a priority. The church of Jesus Christ should be built for the outsider first and insiders second. Now look, you might think the word outsider is a bit harsh, but let me explain. The moment someone steps in here, they go from being an outsider to an insider. That's the goal. That's the role. It's our role when they step into our churches to make them feel that way. They're, they're in the family of faith now. They're in oikos. They're in the club. They get to know the secret password. You get taught the secret handshake. You even get to use Pastor Dector's staff bathroom. You get the Wi-Fi password to Gershom's house. You get all of this stuff. The church of Jesus Christ, it's not a club for the initiated. It's not a holy huddle. That's not what it is. We have one life to live for our God. What a waste if we live our lives viewing it as a club for the insider instead of viewing our kingdom life as that which is meant to reach the outsider, every element of it. When we understand and carry God's heart for the city, for your friends, for your family, for your work colleagues, for all the lost brothers and sisters, for all his sons and daughters. When we keep that first in mind, everything will flow down. When you make it a priority, you'll get creative. The court of the Gentiles was the way to the temple, highly symbolic and literally the way to God, the path to God. And those who had decided it would be easier if they kept it about just them, they had cluttered it up with baying animals, stinky cattle. If you've ever driven past one of those trucks heading to the Fremantle ports with all the sheep in them, who smelt that? Tell me how interested you'd be in meeting God if you walked in here and it smelt like that. That's what this area smelt like. That's what the outsider had to endure. There would have been literal animal dung everywhere. And the animals would have been going crazy. People would have been selling praise. Best price, best price on, on shekel tax. Habib, please buy only here. You'd have other people selling the doves. Be a man. Do the right thing. Russell Peters shout out right there. You got all this stuff going on, haggling, heckling. You got animals, you got stink. You got the, the doves with their wing flapping noises. You've got all this going on, the sound of coins chinging as people exchange. This was God's provision for those who didn't know him and it was cluttered and no one was going to be able to come to him. Those who did not know him would not be able to know him, would not be able to learn about him. That is why Jesus became so angry at what the temple had become. And that is why in Matthew 21, the gospel directed to the Jewish, to the insider audience Jesus declares this in verse 13. 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. He declares that to his own people. He declares that to the Jewish people. This is for everyone. This area is not for you. This is for them. This is for the outsider, and you were meant to be a part of introducing them to me. In the same way that Jesus declares to his disciples, let them come to me and do not stop them. In the same way, Jesus was declaring, this is for everybody. It's for the outsider to know who I am. Jesus had to clear the place that is reserved for them who don't know him to come and meet him. If I could have uh, the band come up. And after he clears the court, after he clears the area, and it would have taken some time. We read it, it seems quick, and perhaps if we view the temple as a small area, which the center of it would have been, but when we realize it's the massive outer court, this would have taken some time. But Jesus spent that time clearing that industry out. But look what it says happens. Look what it says happens when the path is cleared. It says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Once the path is cleared of that which, it doesn't, that which doesn't belong, of convenience, of clutter, once the pathway is pristine, it's clear when they're seeing Him, when they see you, then the blind and the lame. Let me tell you something, under law, they couldn't come, even if they were Jewish. Under law, the blind and the lame couldn't come. The defected couldn't come to a holy God. But in the court of the outsiders, the picture of the church to come, when it was cleared, then those who couldn't see properly, those who were defected, those who were hurting, the sick who need the doctor, then they could come to Him. Once the valley was filled in, once the mountain was made low, once every crooked path was made straight, our roles as disciples, our roles, when we bring that mountain low, when we fill in that valley, when we bend over backwards to make that path clear between Him and them, then they can be healed, then they can know Him, then they will see Him. You know what, every Sunday, Oikos Church, can I say that our goal here is to be part of providing a pristine and clear connection point, free of judgment, unhinged of tradition. The house of God is for outsiders. Those who haven't been able to see Him clearly, they'll see Him. Those who thought He was a cruel God, a God of judgment, those who thought He was distant, those who thought He was mad, those who thought they could never have Him, those who thought this is for others, I could never have that. When we clear the clutter, they'll see Him. Let me tell you something. The Word now says that we are the temple of God. The Word now says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are now that place for outsiders. We are now God's provision for the outsider. I'm God's provision for the outsider. Am I, am I fulfilling that provision? Or am I too caught up on my own shortcuts to where I want to go? Have I got my own focus? Have I got my own priorities? Am I struggling to put the kingdom first? Have I been lazy in building my capacity and my ability and, and nourishing and my giftings to be able to use my life adequately the way God wants to use it to reach other people? Can I fit both? Am I growing? Am I, am I a resource to those that are hurting? Am I a resource to those that need Him? In my workplace, am I God's resource? Are they really seeing Him? Or even worse, do they know I'm a believer and perhaps they've seen the opposite? 
Perhaps all they've heard is the bleating and stunk the stink. And when they reached in, they were stung. They were pricked. And this isn't a message to condemn. It's a message for us to grow and do better. We all, we've all been that bad example. We've all been that cluttered outer core. But we are the temple. The temple was profane and abused when it was made a marketplace, a shortcut, a storage facility, a cluttered, unclear temple. But it was graced and honoured when it was made into a hospital, when it kept the outside of the hurting, the blind, the lame, when it kept them in mind. Then, then they could come in and then they could find him. Let me close us all in prayer. Why don't you close your eyes? Yeah, I thank you, Father, for Oikos Church. A church that understands that church isn't a place to go, it's a family. It's meant to be a family. We're the sons and daughters of Christ. And I thank you when the outsider walks in, they become an insider, they become part of the family. I thank you for the heart of the leadership that I've already experienced. Now I'm just seeing such a, a fresh, a sweet heart. No prick, no thorns. It was sweet. I've encountered it. So I thank you, Father, for them. I know I'm speaking in fertile soil that is in agreement with me. But I just thank you, Father, for every single person here that they would over-spiritualize their life by over-practicalizing it. As well as being a spiritual God, you were a practical God. You were the Word made flesh. You stepped into our world. You're the provider. You're the father. You're the giver. You're the outreacher. You're an encourager. You're the uplifter. You're the welcomer. You're the lover. And I thank you, Father. Our lives could more and more, week by week, revelation by revelation, we could grow into more of a picture of you. Help us to keep our eyes on who we are in relation to us. Help us, in the words of Isaiah, to say, I'm ruined to anything else. I'm undone. This is it now. This is my life now. I thank you, Father, amidst all the busyness of of our Western context in our time-poor societies. Father, help us increase and stretch to have time for others, for the outsider. Help give us strategy, speak to us, help us to grow in these areas. And I just thank you. I pray a blessing over this church, Father. I thank you for this church. You sent it here for a reason. I thank you, Father, that this would be a house of love. This would be a house of mercy and grace. This would be a house of kindness and compassion. And on that foundation, it would be built. That would be the springboard to disciples' lives that look like a picture of Christ. I thank you, Father, that you would unclutter our lives so that people would catch a glimpse of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.